When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello and welcome to The World in 10, your roundup of the day's biggest stories straight from the Times correspondents who wrote them. I'm Rebecca Myers. And I'm Eleanor Shearwood. And today we'll tell you about ghosts in Germany and prisoners on the run. But let's start with what's been happening in Morocco. Late last night, UK time, news broke of an earthquake in Morocco. This is what the confusion that followed sounded like. And since we've come into the office today, the death toll has been rising. Yeah, at the time of recording this, more than a 1,000 people have died and hundreds more have been injured. The earthquake measured 6.8 on the Richter scale and the epicentre was in the Atlas Mountains. It's believed to be the strongest ever earthquake in the region. A 6.4 magnitude earthquake was in 2004 that killed about 600 people. We heard from Lena Volk, who was on holiday in Marrakesh when the earthquake started. There's definitely been a lot of damage to buildings. Um, we also saw people being injured or like injured people being carried out in what looked like a rug being carried out of buildings and waiting in the streets to get an ambulance um, and a lot of a lot of families and children in their pajamas standing outside waiting for what's going to happen next also the I think what really kind of shook me personally as well is that the the fear of is there going to be an aftershock is there going to be something else is there going to be another earthquake these are kind of standing in the street and just waiting for what's to happen, but you don't really know if something's going to happen or when it's going to happen. So, Rebecca, you're assistant news editor of The Sunday Times, so you're pulling together the coverage on this for The Times website and the newspaper tomorrow. How do you do that from London? Yeah, it's it's not always easy from a faraway office, as it were, but in a total coincidence, our chief travel writer, Chris Haslam, was actually in Morocco when this story broke okay. for another story entirely. So he's been out on the ground for us today and is travelling through different regions trying to get a picture of how this is unfolding and relief efforts. We're also sending another journalist to the zones that have been worst hit and then we're drawing on you know correspondents we have who have expertise in the region on Moroccan history that kind of stuff and I've also spoken to a scientist who's written a brilliant piece for us on how earthquakes like this happen what magnitude means in this context and how that compares to other incidents we've seen around the world and, and what makes this one look at the moment quite so deadly for us it's, it's just about trying to get readers the fullest picture possible all those different aspects and angles from you know the science to what happens next as well as 
of course, the best journalism on the ground. So it sounds like you've got a lot going on there. And going back to your chief travel writer, you've been in contact with Chris, haven't you? Yes, he was in Fez. He's now travelling towards Marrakesh and also hopefully going to um, reach some of the more mountainous regions where we feel at the moment we see the epicentre seems to be. Um, He actually gave us this update on his journey earlier today. When it first broke last night, we were hearing there were no casualties whatsoever. And then social media started kicking off from Marrakesh. There were lots, an awful lot of uh, people in Marrakesh at the moment because there's a, there's a travel show on there. Restaurant ceilings collapsing, buildings collapsing, people being turfed out of their hotels and spending the night on the street. Down towards the epicentre, um, lots and lots of damage, lots of people killed down there. My fixer, actually, Hossein, uh, is telling me that a father and son have been killed in his village in a collapsing house. So there's... there's, there's there are sort of personal tragedies emerging all around and of course it could go further. Chris will be updating us with dispatches as the day goes on and and into tomorrow so do go to thetimes.co.uk to read those. There's been so much breaking news today. So our next story is an update on the escaped prisoner, Daniel Khalif, who we spoke about on the podcast actually a few days ago. Yes, and just to remind you, he's the 21-year-old terror suspect who broke out of a jail in London on Wednesday morning. He was a kitchen worker and escaped by clinging onto the bottom of a food truck, but... He has now been caught. Yeah, about 12 miles away from the prison he escaped from. Now, this ended a four-day nationwide manhunt. Khalif was all over the headlines. And while the question on Thursday, and while the question initially was, how did he get out? The question since has been, how do you catch someone on the run? Yeah, it's been something that's really kind of gripped the nation, I think. Mm. And there have been delays at airports, people searching cars at ports and speculation that he'd actually managed to get abroad. So not necessarily a small search zone no. either. Um, and we've been hearing from Sue Sim. She led the manhunt for Raoul Moat in 2010. He went on the run for seven days after killing someone and wounding two others. It was the largest operation in modern history. And she says this ground search is not the whole story. There'll also be a huge investigative strategy ongoing where you will have them looking at what he was doing before he left the prison. You'll be looking at uh, a a huge intelligence strategy and with the intelligence capability of the MET and the counterterrorism units, they will be deploying everything to uh, their best efforts to allow the search to be directed in a meaningful manner. So you've got all of that going on, but then there's also this nationwide search for this man and police are offering £20,000 as a reward. Now, we'd heard yesterday that there'd been a confirmed sighting of him leaving the van at a huge roundabout not far from the prison. Peter Blexley was a detective at the Metropolitan Police. That's the force that had been searching for Khalif and told us that sighting would have been vital. Use that as a start point to then pan out your CCTV search, all the systems from there, to try and then get a direction of travel in the hope that they can shorten this time gap. If you look at it now as some four days, treat that as a piece of string. What you're trying to do is shorten that piece of string by going from one sighting to another sighting to another sighting, all the time closing the time gap between you and the fugitive. Before 11 o'clock this morning, Khalif was found in northwest London, where he was pulled off his bike by a plainclothes police officer. 
AI is the story we can't escape at the moment. And while there seems to be a sort of million techie questions about it, most people just want to know whether they're safe. Definitely. And The Times has been speaking to Ian Hogarth. Now, he's the man tasked with kind of making sure that that's the case, really. He's the UK's AI star and he's assembling a team to advise the British state and the international community on how to build, regulate and implement AI safely. Now, that all sounds really reassuring, but he's not hugely optimistic. I think that we, that the people building these systems are explicitly on record as saying they do not understand how they work mm. and they cannot say what they're capable of doing. Mm. I mean, that just seems quite disquieting mm. when we are racing to deploy these systems so quickly. And I think we just need more of a scientific basis for these systems and to be more deliberate about assessing the risks and then proceeding accordingly. And Hogarth reports directly to the Prime Minister and the task force he's heading up will be crucial in November when the UK hosts the first global summit on AI safety. So who better to put his concerns into context than Mark Selman, the Times technology correspondent, who interviewed him. He's really saying what the leaders of this large tech companies have said already, which is that, yes, we're building these systems, we know a lot of what they can do, but sometimes they come up with things that they didn't realise they could do. This It's called emergent properties. And it really just highlights how we're at sort of the early stages of trying to understand the full capabilities of very, very powerful systems that have been built actually quite quickly. It's a fascinating interview and you can read it in full at thetimes.co.uk. There is a great mystery gripping Germany. This is the tale of the phantom sandwich thrower. The what? (laughs) No, no, no. Not the ghost of Christmas past, nor anything you'd see on Ghostbusters, but a phantom motorist who's been throwing sandwiches out of a car window every weekday morning in central Germany. Sometimes with salami, sometimes with cheese, sometimes whole, sometimes bitten into. They've ended up in people's gardens and even football clubs. Extraordinary. But Mm. why is this happening? Is it in defiance against a partner who's always making sandwiches? Or is it maybe affection if they don't want to offend them? Interesting question to ask because the first quote in the piece is, I have no idea why they're doing this. (laughs) Whatever the reason, they must be pretty desperate though because throwing rubbish like that from vehicles could mean a 400 euro fine and locals are getting quite annoyed. That's all we've got time for today, but we can't not mention the Times' coverage of the Rugby World Cup. That's already kicked off, and there's a really interesting analysis piece on what happened to the dominance of the All Blacks. Definitely worth a read. We'll be back tomorrow. 